0: Hello and welcome to The Berkeley Remix, a seasonal podcast series from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. In this podcast series, we draw on thousands of interviews to bring those stories to life. Please join us for the third season of The Berkeley Remix, entitled First Response, AIDS and Community in San Francisco. On October 9, 1984, the director of the San Francisco Public Health Department, Dr. Mervyn Silverman, invoked the city of San Francisco's emergency powers.
1: Today I have ordered the closure of 14 commercial establishments which promote and profit from the spread of AIDS.
0: Just two years before, the relationship between the public health service and the gay community was different. Here is the assistant director for the city department of health, Dr. Selma Dritz. I had a rapport with the community, I had a rapport with their organizations, I had a rapport with their doctors. And they reported in, because they trusted us, they reported in, in spite of being afraid of the confidentiality problems. Mm -hmm. So we knew better what was happening and how it was Mm -hmm. happening, why it was happening, until AIDS hit us and then we didn't know from beans. Mm -hmm. What had happened to this relationship? Recall that at this time we were at the high point of our faith in the power of antibiotics and vaccines to control disease. Add to that a history of police targeting gay meeting places, and many in the community were suspicious of some efforts by the city of San Francisco to manage the spread of a new but untreatable disease that was moving through the gay community like wildfire. Silverman felt that education of the gay community was the key. But in a context of intolerance and the threat of disease, it's easy to see that every word and image of the health department's first AIDS education poster had to be weighed carefully. I
1: don't know if we had the word AIDS at that time or not. And we said you reduce your number of sexual partners, reduce your drug use, use condoms every time, stuff like that. On one side, there were people who said that we had no business talking about that, and this was, this was from some elements of the gay community. Some people, mostly in the straight community, said this is ridiculous. Why don't you come out and say stop using drugs? Don't have more than one partner, all those sorts of things. So we really didn't satisfy, I don't think, anybody significantly. Uh, I believed in those days that just coming out and saying don't, don't is like what parents tell their kids, and that doesn't work. The whole concept from the very beginning was to try and work with the community. In the education, I never felt that government was very good at dealing with sexual issues. So very early we started bringing the community in uh, and trying to respond to their needs and provide funding, planning and oversight, but let them do the actual services.
0: But what did health officials actually know about the disease? Back in 1981, Selma Dritz and the city's public health department cast a wide net in their search for the pathways of transmission. They looked at pesticides, plant food, amyl nitrates, the drug of choice in the gay clubs and bathhouses, and partnered with the CDC to administer questionnaires to gay men. But it took another two years to get the budget to analyze the results. What they eventually found was confirmation that the only significant predictors of AIDS was frequency and type of sex. Early on in the epidemic, it was well understood by epidemiologists and public health officials that the bathhouses were likely an important pathway of the transmission of AIDS. The initial response of the public health department was to reach the gay community with education about the disease, placing posters and literature in the clubs. But the public health service was viewed by many with suspicion, Leaders of the gay men's public health organizations, such as Bay Area Physicians for Human Rights, which we talked about in the previous episode, found themselves torn between the anger and suspicion of the community and their own concerns for public health. Here again is Richard Lee Andrews.
2: We had to answer to the community about what to do. And the community was, as I said, it's it's the CIA putting stuff in the vents of the bathhouse. I mean, I clearly remember that. Any more than one group of community members and bathhouse owners that I went to as president of Bafford, that they, you know, were insistent that's what it was and that we were being stupid if we thought it was anything else. There was a lot of discussion in the gay papers that seemed to make people believe that this was a plot. That this was a government or some kind of homophobic plot out to get us. There was a lot of paranoia. The hardest thing initially was to try to keep my composure because it was very upsetting to hear some people that I even knew and had considered friends addressing their anger as if I were responsible for the problem. I mean, I'm the messenger and the messenger has, you know, has a bad message like, we need to think about, it might be something sexually transmitted, you guys, we might need to. And boo, you know, go away, you're a liar, you're, you're a turncoat, you're an Uncle Tom, you're working for the government, you know, it's like all that kind of stuff leaves you a little baffled. Yeah. <laughs> you feel like you've been working for several years to be a real advocate for gay health and coming out, and then looked at as a traitor and as an enemy was, well, it was very difficult.
0: One catalyst for a change in direction was a survey of gay men conducted by Leon McKusick, the gist of which was that sex education was having little to no effect on behavior. At the same time, public pressure was mounting to do something about the bathhouses, which were flashpoints for the spread of AIDS. Gay activist Larry Littlejohn became convinced of the ineffectiveness of the public health education efforts and worked to force Mervyn Silverman and the public health department to close the bathhouses. Silverman's oral history goes into great detail about the machinations to close or not close the bathhouses. One of Silverman's stories of a gay advocate who attended the community meeting in the Castro illustrated Silverman's view of the stakes involved.
3: Now, obviously, it was a stacked meeting because a lot of bathhouse owners were there. Um, And that's where somebody was talking about when they were talking about the, the... programs we had in bathhouses, one of the gay men got up and said, you know, putting a sign up in a bathhouse about safer sex is like putting a sign up in a candy store saying sugar's bad for you. And once you're there, you know, it's not going to have much impact. I never forgot that. But just to show you the depth of the concern about closing the bathhouses, um, a, somebody who was at that time a friend of mine had been in my office the day before in tears, saying, you've got to close the bathhouses." Another friend of mine is in the hospital, and he only went to the bathhouses. So when I was invited to come down to this thing, I said, I want you to be there. And he was there, and they were calling on people, and and he kept raising his hand. I was waiting, and he was the last person called on. They call on him, and he says, I think... You know, waiting for him to say, "We've got to close the bathhouses." I think we want to put signs up in the cubicles. And I looked at that and I said, "I'll be damned." You know, this—this this was the person crying in my yeah. office the day before.
0: The public wanted protection from a deadly disease. But the gay community was fearful of the return of the heavy hand of the government, of laws, and power that to some were even more threatening. This wasn't just about a disease. This was about power and identity. The other issue was, from a medical perspective, the disease agent had not yet been isolated. Dr. Donald Abrams, one of the members of the AIDS clinic at the San Francisco General, was skeptical of moves to close the bathhouses.
4: As a gay man and as a member of a, a group of people that have been persecuted from time immemorial, I also thought that in the absence of knowing what this is and being absolutely certain that doing this would, could have very wide-ranging repercussions. I mean, the gay community had achieved a lot of liberation, a lot of you know, prominence in San Francisco, certainly over the, over the 70s and into the early 80s, and I thought that you know, doing this would really be a setback.
0: A meeting with some of the bathhouse owners changed Abrams' mind.
4: Initially, I was against the concept, and somewhere along the line, Paul had this meeting of the bathhouse operators that he, he invited me to, uh, you know, so that we could all talk about the issue and what we felt about it. And, you know, I might have mentioned to them that I thought all of my patients were going to bathhouses, and one in particular. And, and then I do remember that guy that made that awful comment that said, Well, listen, doc, you know, we're all in the the same thing. I mean, you get the money, we get the money when they come to us, and you get the money when they come to you. And we just looked at each other because, first of all, we are salaried, number one. We don't make money off of this. And these people were dying, and we thought that that was really quite cold and mercenary. So that was a real shocker to hear a member of of the community say that.
0: Irvin Silverman began to receive death threats, and he attended a press conference in a bulletproof vest. He was greeted by a group of men in towels protesting. Silverman delayed the announcement of closure after learning that he lacked the legal authority to close the bathhouses. He decided to make the dramatic announcement of the closure that you heard at the beginning of this episode on October 9. The baths were reopened shortly thereafter by San Francisco Superior Court Judge Roy Wonder on November twenty eighth. But the power play got results.
3: I wanted to make sure that we try to change behaviors I say across the whole community. In order to do that, I had to have the community be responsive to and supportive of what the health department and its programs were doing. And my feeling was because I was trying to reach the whole community, the the way to get the educational impact would be to have the gay community do it, not the government. I mean, there were people in the gay community who made it very clear that they didn't like the bathhouses, they think they should be closed. But if I closed them, they'd man the barricades. Mm-hmm. And why would they man the barricades? And the, This argument became the pervasive argument that turned strongest backers I had for closing the bathhouse around. The Government closes the bathhouses in San Francisco, which is seen as this, you know, the, the bastion of gay liberation and what have you. What message does that send to less liberal states and communities? and then it's well obviously people get picked up in bars gay bars and also you close the gay bars and then the sodomy laws would either be enforced or reinstated depending on what the status was in the new state and i remember having one very important person i thought in the gay community who had been supporting me called me up and saying we're about I, I can't support you anymore and i said why And he says this, this argument And that argument was so pervasive, and it's a very strong argument. And the deal was, yeah, if they close down because they don't have any business, or they close down because we close them down, that would be one thing. But if you, government, close them down, just can't have that, not after all the gains we've made.
0: So we can see the challenges Silverman was facing in trying to work with the gay community. Which community was supposed to be served? Those who frequented or owned the bathhouses? Those who feared the spread of AIDS and saw the baths as a source of infection, nothing more? Or the members of the larger national, even global, LGBT community that looked to San Francisco as a beacon of gay political power and progressive politics? But the toll the disease was taking was itself becoming a powerful force in the gay community, however it was defined, making Silverman's message against unsafe sexual practices easier to hear, along with the threat of more public health intervention if the owners did not take some responsibility for what went on inside the bathhouses. Within a couple of years, many of the baths had closed for lack of customers, and in May 1987, the last of the city's establishments, the 21st Street Baths, shut its doors.
3: I'm wondering to what degree you also saw the issue as one involving civil liberties
0: as opposed to public health issues.
3: People have said, why are you treating AIDS differently than other diseases? Other diseases we have testing and reporting and we don't go through all this uh, um, um, permission and consent. And why is AIDS fairly really different? And, and, and I think what has made this different has been the way in which it's been dealt with. And because of discrimination, we had to do things differently with AIDS than we might do with, say, polio or or something else, because the impact of that knowledge on others for other diseases is usually minimal. Mm -hmm. For AIDS, it created, and still creates today as we speak, incredible barriers and and reactions by others uh, to people with HIV, people who have AIDS, people who care for them, and people who are family members. So in a sense, we did things differently, but it was based on the the epidemic is a different epidemic. It is Mm -hmm. not like others. The organism behaves like many other organisms, I mean, in a sense, but the way in which society behaves is totally different and therefore had to be dealt with
0: differently. The AIDS epidemic was different, and it was treated differently from other epidemics in San Francisco, in California, and in the United States. Members of the gay community were quite right to be suspicious of the fact that the only basic health intervention they could see forbade the very behavior that was also the target of society's moral outrage or shame-faced disregard. They wanted research, specialized care, and treatment options, not a wagging finger. The researchers, public health officers, and caregivers involved in fighting AIDS had an uphill battle convincing public institutions that the disease deserved their attention and resources, a struggle that you'll hear about in the next episode of First Response. This podcast was produced, written, and narrated by Paul Burnett. Editing by Ali Sharotis and Paul Burnett. Production and promotion assistance by David Dunham and Shanna Farrell. Special thanks to the band Do Make Say Think, whose music can be found at Constellation Records. Go to cstrecords.com or to your local record store to hear more. Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett. Thanks also to Scott Colonico for his piece, When AIDS Was Funny, and to the archives of the Ronald Reagan Library, UC San Francisco, San Francisco State University. All interview clips were taken from the Oral History Center collections, and the audio digitization was undertaken by David Dunham and the student employees Marissa Uribe, Carla Palacian, Amna Hawk, Holly O'Brien,
1: and Cindy Jinn.
0: I'm Martin Meeker, director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.